ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Today, we bring you the next in our series of Work With Purpose podcasts. As regular listeners to the program, you'll know that we now have a few program streams of Work With Purpose. There's the regular series where the future leaders of IPA and I interview the leadership of the Australian Public Service about not just COVID-19 and the impacts of COVID-19, but the future challenges and opportunities for the Australian Public Service. Our second program of podcasts is Work With Purpose, A National Perspective, which features IPA's National President, Dr Gordon DeBrower, in conversation with the leaders of the various state and territory public services. And that has been a great success. Well, today we introduce our third line of programming with Work With Purpose, which is Work With Purpose, an international perspective. Australian public servants do an incredible amount of work around the world to deliver not just for Australians, but for the people of many other countries. It is an important and critical part of Australia's role in the world in areas as diverse as health, trade, agriculture, defence, national security and diplomacy. So this week, work with purpose and international perspective. So please sit back and enjoy our very first episode with Dr Gordon de Brower in conversation with Bernadette Welsh. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Work With Purpose, uh, a podcast which is focused on the Australian public service, or I should say public services across Australia, until today. My name's Gordon DeBrower, and I'm the IPA National President. I've been enjoying hosting this Work With Purpose, a national perspective, featuring public service leaders from across the country. Today, however, I'm delighted, and we're really fortunate, to have a perspective from one of Australia's South Pacific neighbours, And we're joined by Bernadette Welsh, who until recently was the Fijian government's permanent secretary for health and medical services. Bernadette led the civil service response to the pandemic in Fiji, putting in train quarantine health, contact tracing and training. Bernadette is maybe known to quite a few of you uh, as as an Australian public servant with uh, almost three decades experience uh, across Australia and Fiji in a range of different government departments. Uh, She became Permanent Secretary for the Civil Service in Fiji in 2016 and then later took up the position in the the health portfolio. She has a Public Service Medal for Outstanding Public Service uh, for her work on the the HIH uh, Claim Support Scheme uh, insurance crisis, as well as heading the operation for Australia's first G20 finance presidency in 2006. And she's uh, come back uh, to Australia now after finishing up in in Fiji. So Bernadette, uh, welcome to uh, Work With Purpose. Maybe uh, you can just uh, help us by introducing a little bit about the context of the Fijian health system. 
Thank you very much, Gordon. And I'm really delighted to be here today to share some of my experiences. Uh, for context, it's important to understand that Fiji is made up of over 300 islands and around 130 of them are um, populated. So when it comes to providing health and medical services, there are very unique challenges. Uh, the other important context is that Fiji has a health system that is managed by one ministry. All of the health services, public health and clinical services, uh, the health regulation and health policy all sit within the one ministry. So that makes it, I think, a lot easier when you're dealing with a crisis because you can have a single coordinated response. That, we might come back to that theme a few times in this conversation. Can you start off by, uh, or secondly start off, <laughs> by uh, describing how you saw the, the pandemic emerging? How did you recognise its significance? What were the, what were the signs for you? Well, uh, I was very lucky in that I had a Head of Health Protection in the Ministry of Health who also was responsible for our Centre for Disease Control. And she was absolutely on top of public health issues emerging globally at all times. So she saw this starting to come out of Wuhan and briefed myself and the minister, minister very early in the piece, in the first week of January. And we decided that we wanted to have daily briefing on this. So she was monitoring the news coming out of China and coming out of WHO. And we recognised within a couple of weeks that this was something that we were going to need to act upon. And by the third week of January, we started putting our response in place. Can you talk a bit about what that response was? Well, um, I say luckily, some might not think so, but luckily for us, we had just been through a measles outbreak in the Pacific. And we already had a task force set up to deal with the measles outbreak. It had been headed by the Head of Health Protection and uh, we had membership from the WHO, the Pacific community, Fiji National University, the private sector, and uh, a great deal of the leadership within the Ministry of Health and our communicable disease experts. They were all a part of the task force. It met regularly. It monitored the situation with the measles outbreak um, across the Pacific. It monitored what was happening within Fiji and its task was to give both policy advice and to monitor our response and its effectiveness. So I repurposed that task force and I turned it into the COVID-19 task force. It had the same membership and I put the chief medical advisor in as the chair and I kept the head of health protection uh, to run the secretariat. The chief medical advisor role was a new role that I had uh, put in place only about two months before. Um, we also in Fiji have a well-established national disaster management framework. So in Fiji, um, we're very much used to having to respond to crises. So we drew on both 
what we knew about how to respond to natural disasters, which we had had to do in health. We were used to setting up divisional um, emergency operations centres and headquarters emergency operations centres. So I drew on the expertise we had within health to do that and also repurposed that task force. Um, that was the third, by the third week of January, we had that operating. Also in the same week, I set up a consultative uh, committee across government, which I chaired, and uh, it meant that I had direct access to permanent secretaries and heads of um, some of the other relevant agencies so that we could start having a coordinated response. Um, and one of the first things that we did through that forum was to implement a um, health arrivals card. So I had immigration involved in that forum. Uh, they took the health arrivals card that we had designed with the help of WHO and uh, that was implemented by the 1st of February. And I think we were probably one of the first countries in the world to introduce a COVID-specific arrivals card for people coming into the country. Um, and it also had a, a tear-off card for, to tell people what the symptoms were that they should look out for and what numbers they should call. So uh, we were um, acting on border control and management very early in the piece as well. Just in terms of the impact in Fiji, how many people were effect, affected by it just on the sort of numbers and then we'll come back through some of the processes that again. Okay. Um, so by the time I left Fiji, which was about six weeks ago, we'd had 18 cases of COVID. Uh, they had come in, uh, six of those cases had come in through the border. Four of those cases had not spread the disease to anybody else. Two of them had spread the disease to uh, a number of people, mostly family members that they lived with. Um, and at that point in time, no one had been in the ICU and no one had died. So you, you mentioned at the start, Fiji's geographically dispersed, lots of small communities. How did that play out with the range of communities, different islands, small communities and, and the spread? How did you stop that spread? Well, um, there were a few... Th we, we took a uh, risk management approach to how we uh, looked at what we needed to do to keep Fiji safe. Um, one of the things that we decided to do was er early was to set up um, isolation facilities in one hospital in each division... And a, a divisions like a, a local area? Yes, yes. Um, and in, uh, in the communities as well. Because uh, when we looked at the risks that we were going to have to deal with, um, when you've got control of COVID, you can manage risk by border controls and contact tracing and uh, testing and all this sort of thing. Once you get widespread... Um, community outbreaks, one of the things that you have to focus on is mitigating the risk of the most at-risk people getting the disease and dying from it. So this is why we came up with this idea of community isolation facilities. Fiji has a, a big problem with um, type 2 diabetes and uh, we had a number of people who, had they caught uh, COVID, would have been at uh, risk of severe consequences. 
So we thought about, well, what do we do if we get widespread community transmission? Uh, we didn't want to break our health system. Um, we didn't want to put everybody who had the disease into hospital if they weren't really sick. But we didn't want people who weren't really sick to spread the disease to older people or people with diabetes. So we thought we'll set up community isolation so that people who have the disease but aren't really very sick can be moved out of the family home where people live in larger numbers than what we're used to in Australia and they can be isolated from those at-risk family members. So we set all of these things up early. We go back to your question about um, how did we ensure that there wasn't um, spread into the community. Because we had these both hospital-based and community isolation facilities set up very early as a part of our approach to risk management, when we got our first case, we were able to move the whole family unit into isolation. So rather than relying on home quarantine to stop the spread of the disease, we thought it was probably inevitable that some family members would have caught it. We moved the whole family into monitored isolation um, in a hospital facility and over the period of time that they were in isolation, three of them uh, tested positive. And, but we were able to stop the spread of the disease and it worked so successfully that we used that approach with every one of the six cases. We moved the people who were living in the family home, who were most at risk, into monitored isolation. And that's how we broke the chain of transmission very early. Yeah. You mentioned uh, that the authorities were prepared because you'd gone through the measles outbreak and you're used to natural disasters. Can you reflect on how the population viewed how they, how they should respond, or how they would engage? So you, you're keeping people together with their family but it was there broader acceptance or a broader understanding of having just gone through measles, people thought we need to protect ourselves and they'd accept the directions or they'd accept the guidance? Um, yes, well, throughout the measles campaign, one of the things that we did was we um, made an early decision to appoint an official spokesperson because it's really important when you're dealing with any sort of a crisis that you have a spokesperson who is authentic, honest, articulate and can be trusted by the community. Um, and as a result of that, with the regular communication that we had with the community through the official spokesperson, the community came to build confidence in the Ministry of Health and its ability to deal with an outbreak. And it also built trust in our official spokesperson. So when it came to COVID, I appointed two official spokespersons. One was the chief medical advisor and one was the same spokesperson I'd had for the, for the measles, the head of health protection. And we did the same thing. And uh, as you know, with things like this, there's a lot of fake news around and people get caught up on what they read in social media and the rumours. Uh, in Fiji, we have something called the coconut wireless, which is the rumour mill. Um, and when the coconut wireless started coming out with um, rumours, we were able to sort of 
clamp down on it through media releases or press conferences with our official spokespeople and remind people that they could trust the Ministry of Health to give them honest and timely information and that they should only get their information from reliable government sources or WHO about COVID. Um, and we said that over and over again and people came to um, lose their fear because there was a lot of fear at first because nobody understood the disease. We didn't understand it. WHO didn't understand it. It was new. Um, but uh, they lost their fear over time but also listened to the words of advice that we were giving. And I had a banner on the Fiji Sun every single day which said, wash your hands, don't touch your face. That banner um, played out in the main uh, newspaper every day for about three months. Um, we also used um, the Fiji Sevens to do uh, an advertisement to tell people what they needed to do to keep safe because they were very uh, highly regarded, even revered in Fiji. And um, that ad that we did went so viral uh, that it had tens of millions of hits. It went globally viral. Um, so we, we used those kinds of methods to get our point across and to communicate uh, clearly and to help people to um, understand what they needed to do. Uh, and people in Fiji uh, tend to be um, quite compliant and listen to uh, the government. Um, so that made our job a lot easier as well. In terms of the cultural communication, fo football is one thing, uh, and very powerful. Uh, what about regional differences or language? Are there language issues? Are there differences in, in, uh, between genders around, around the, the message and the engagement? Um, uh, yes, there are. And um, we uh, started putting some information uh, in the newspapers to, uh, and we made sure that we were getting it translated into Hindi and Itoke, which were the main two languages outside of English in uh, Fiji. We also developed a series of communication materials in the three languages and uh, through uh, divisional commissioners who uh, were located in each of the four divisions and who belonged in a different ministry, but we coordinated with them. Uh, we got a number of civil servants from uh, around the country, not just in health, gave them these materials and got them to go right out into communities and give the messaging about COVID-19 and what they needed to do to keep themselves safe. Um, in Fiji, we have some communities that are located in areas where there are no roads, uh, in mountainous areas. I used to have some nurses who ran nursing stations who, in order to uh, visit their um, their patients, their communities, would have to trek through the mountains on horseback or by foot. And so some of the people who were being sent out with this messaging were doing just that. They were wading through rivers and climbing up hills and mountains to go to communities to get this face-to-face -face messaging across. Um, but we also quite effectively used 
the health minister and the prime minister to do that because uh, the health minister was um, uh, very articulate, very engaging, very popular, uh, as was the PM. So um, when they went out to communities, um, they were armed with the information that they needed to put some of this messaging across as well. In terms of the relationships, uh, you mentioned uh, the World Health the World Health Organization earlier on. Well, how, how important were they in constructing a response or getting the science and communicating or understanding what was going on or in developing your own health protocols? Um, we couldn't have done what we achieved without the early uh, focused help that we got from WHO. Uh, we already had a very good relationship with them and um, they were all well known to us. We dealt with them a lot. And of course, through the measles task force, which we then turned into the COVID task force, they were um, involved in helping us to develop our policy response. They also, whenever we asked them to, uh, gave us a presentation and update on what was happening globally. Uh, we were monitoring the information that they had uh, online as well. Uh, WHO also set up a, um, a regional consultation group with all of the heads of health and ministers from across the Pacific region and we used to meet every week and they would give us information about updates and uh, they would encourage us to share our experiences. Um, uh, WHO also provided our testing consumables so that we were able to um, very early on start our own molecular testing in Fiji, which helped us enormously because we were able to get very quick um, results when we did our tests. And when um, quite early in the piece, I got the head of uh, WHO's incident management team to come in and speak to myself and the chief medical advisor uh, because I wanted to pick his brains. I knew he'd been involved in the Ebola response in Africa. And um, we sat down and talked to him for over three hours one Saturday afternoon. And I made a lot of key decisions that day after learning from him some of the things that had worked in a, a similar crisis situation in Africa. Um, and uh, one of the things I decided to do was to set up our own incident management team. We used the WHO framework, uh, but I added an extra position of Chief Operating Officer into the framework. And really, the decision to set up an incident management team was a key turning point for us because we went from the Ministry of Health um, consulting with other agencies and asking for help to a Ministry of Health-led multi-agency incident management team with liaison officers and secondees from all over government, including the military and the police who helped to run our operations room. And that was when we truly started to lead a very well-coordinated national response to COVID. Um, and the WHO provided us with 
an experienced epidemiologist that they flew out from Manila who'd worked in incident management teams before and he helped us set that IMT up. And he was still with us on secondment um, when I left uh, Fiji. So they made an enormous contribution to us. It's amazing how well, experience matters and the way you're talking about, but both in terms of understanding the previous measles outbreak and that, how that prepared you, but also WHO and, and their various bits of experience, how that helped. Can you talk a bit about on the relationship side? You, you mentioned the police and the military, uh, which are probably more uh, on, the, on the enforcement side. How did, how did you develop that relationship or how, how quickly did that relationship come together? And um, so what, was the, what were the important bits in bringing that relationship together? Well, um, luckily for me, I already had a good relationship with them, especially with the police, because in my previous role um, as the Permanent Secretary for Civil Service, I had coordinated the ADB annual meeting. And we'd worked very, very closely with the police on that. Um, and uh, we collaborated very well. Um, so we had a good relationship and I was known to them. Uh, and I felt very confident in bringing them in early and collaborating again with them. And I think that this shows how important it is to uh, uh, work well with people because you never know when you're going to need to work with them again. Those relationships that you establish... Uh, through often just doing something because it's the right thing to do, not because you're going to get anything out of it, are uh, so valuable to you throughout your career. But I digress somewhat. Um, also, when we first started briefing the Prime Minister and Cabinet, they brought the commander of the military forces and the police commissioner into the room for those briefings, right from the first briefing. And it helped them to understand very quickly the nature of the challenge that we were dealing with. And right from that first meeting, they were thinking about how can we help? What can we do? And it wasn't just on enforcement. Mm. The, for example, the um, Command RFMF realised very early that we needed resources uh, because we had talked about how important it was going to be to have really a really strong contact tracing system and uh, trained people. We already had our health inspectors who did contact tracing, but we knew we would likely need more. And so the first... Um, uh, the first thing that we did with the military was to train up a, a group of soldiers to be contact tracers under the leadership of health. Um, so they were trying to think right from the start about how they could help. They ended up uh, running our operations room in the incident management team once that was set up. Um, they ended up helping to run our contact tracing deployments so when we had a case, we would deploy a group of contact tracers out to um, do interviews. They also coordinated our quarantine service. So we had people um, uh, quarantined in hotels and we had uh, uh, the military and health stationed in those hotels supervising the quarantine service. So, uh, and of course, then uh, the police were 
mainly doing the enforcement on the ground of the different um, uh, regulatory decisions that we'd had to make um, because uh, there, were a, there were a lot of uh, regulations that we signed in um, so that we could make sure that uh, we could monitor the spread of disease and we could enforce effectively the things that needed to be done to keep the country safe. Can I, can I ask a very different kind of question outside the health domain, but really more about the nature of the Fijian people's experience of government and service delivery of what you saw just as an observation on how they experienced, did they, how did, you, how did the government provide continuity of services to, to the public? In, any observations around that or the way the service itself organised itself in terms of, apart from the COVID, around that broader array of how does the public service work, where does it work, how does it engage with the public? Any reflections that come to mind from that? Um, one of the things that we were conscious of in the Ministry of Health was that um, uh, we needed to ensure continuity of health services while dealing with the global pandemic. And that came into stark relief for both health and the whole of the system when we had a tropical cyclone, a deadly tropical cyclone. And we all had to coordinate our response to a tropical cyclone while trying to ensure that we were complying with all of our COVID-19 measures. Um, and that was very challenging, uh, but it was done. You know, they were able to do it. Uh, I think that the uh, one of the things that I observed early was that um, there was a lot of goodwill across the civil service to make sure that uh, all of the resources that were needed for COVID were being provided. Uh, there was also a recognition that this was going to impact on the budget and people across the civil service were starting to think about how could we ensure continuity of service, how could we ensure that we're doing that within a COVID sort of cognizant uh, way of operating, you know, with social distancing and having people working from home and introducing infection control. Um, but also, what projects can we push out? <laughs> because we didn't have the resources to be able to do everything that we had planned to do, and I'm talking about the whole of the civil service, mm. um, both um, financial resources or human resources, of course. So there was a lot of reprioritisation that had to go on. Uh, and, of course, uh, a lot of different parts of the civil service had to quickly develop policy advice on how the government could support the population when there were mass job layoffs and, um, you know, when people were struggling to survive because of the uh, impact on the economy. We're probably getting close to time. Uh, maybe just two, two final questions. One is, is there anything that strikes you, having gone through that experience in Fiji, about the Australian experience or what's happened in Australia, about how to handle these things? 
I referred earlier when I did the context setting to the fact that uh, Fiji, you know, it's a small country and it has one health system, one health service that coordinates everything. And therefore, we had one task force. We had one incident management team. Now, Australia is different in the way that it's organised. But I think that uh, that level of simplicity can be introduced when trying to deal with a crisis. The more complex your system is, the harder it is to pivot. And with something like this, where you're learning on a daily basis about how this disease works and the impacts that it has and uh, what's happening to the global supply chain and how it's affecting economies, etc. Um, you really need to uh, make it as uncomplicated as possible and ensure that you're focusing clearly on risk management. That's great. Mm. So the last question, Bernadette, uh, from all of this... What did you discover about yourself that you didn't know before, or maybe you knew? But uh, what did you what, what did you learn about yourself? Um, I've been involved in a lot of um, challenging scenarios, and I've worked in crisis management before. Um, I I learned about how it feels to have that sense of uh, how honoured you can be to be given such a responsibility at such a time. I, I'd always, uh, I guess, felt the importance of the roles I'd had in the past, but there was much more of a depth to this because I had responsibility for the health of a nation in a once in 100 year pandemic. I also learned through this more about listening and hearing what others have to say. Uh, it's really important when you're dealing with something like this to make sure that you've got the right people giving you advice and you're open to that advice. And I also learned about when it's time to step back when you realise that You've done what you can to put in place everything that's needed and when your value add has diminishing returns and when it's time to step back and let others step in and take up the reign of leadership. Bernadette, uh, th thank you. Uh, the very wise words and, and thank you for your honesty and, and your, your articulateness in, in talking through these issues. And let me thank you as well for what you've done uh, in service to people, in this case, the Fijian people, but also uh, I think uh, you've reflected very nicely, very well on, on Australia and the capability that comes from the Australian public service, or I should say public services in Australia. But, but thank you very much, Bernadette. Thank you, Gordon. What a great conversation and a big thanks to Bernadette Welsh for sharing her story with us today and for being our very first Work With Purpose and International Perspective, our very first guest. So thank you so much to Bernadette Welsh. There will be many more such conversations like this one 
into the future as we explore the impact that Australian public servants are having around the world. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network, so if you do have an interest in government communication, please type GovComs into your podcast app and it will be sure to come up. Now, if you would like to leave us a rating or a review about any of our Work With Purpose podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated because what it does do is help us to be found. And if you do see our social media promotion, a like or a share or a comment or a review or anything, it wouldn't go astray because what it does is help us to be found. Once again, a very big thanks to all of the team at IPA who do such a great job in helping to put this program together and also to my team at Content Group and in particular Ruby Cooper who runs all of the social media and lots of other stuff. So thanks to you Ruby for your ongoing hard work and of course to our friends at the Australian Public Service Commission. We are certainly very grateful for your ongoing support. So thanks again to my good friend, Gordon Debrower, for that conversation today with Bernadette Welsh. But from me, David Pembroke, that's all for this week. Please stay tuned for our next episodes of Work With Purpose. But for the moment, it's bye for now. <laughs>